0: Hello and welcome to The Stack. On the week the new 2022 World Cup Panini sticker album is released, we look at the secret for Panini's success worldwide. Plus, we praise a local paper in the US and visit a brand new magazine shop in Toronto. Stay tuned. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking about something that many remember fondly from their childhood, the iconic Panini sticker albums. Since 1970, they have published a special World Cup sticker album, with stickers of all the players competing. Shortly, we will learn more about the history of those albums, but first, here is what I wrote about their appeal. Since 1998, I've had a personal tradition, which is repeated every four years, collecting the World Cup Panini sticker albums. It's a curious hobby. I'm not a fanatic football fan. But there's something appealing about the iconic and enduring album. And as a fan of anything in print, I love collecting the stickers. The 2022 version for the Qatar World Cup arrives on stands in the UK this week. It was published in my Brazilian homeland last week. Its release has long been a remarkable date in the football fans' calendar. Four years ago, I took a train to the quaint town of Tunbridge Wells and paid a visit to Panini's UK office to find out more about the brand's appeal. Sales numbers for the albums are not disclosed, but the World Cup is no doubt a profitable time for the Panini group, which is headquartered in Modena, Italy. Brothers Benito and Giuseppe Panini founded the group in 1961, and although they have many other products under their umbrella, the World Cup album is probably their most prized possession. They've been publishing sticker albums ever since 1970. Brazil won the World Cup that year. What I wouldn't give for a Pelé sticker from that first issue, but then so would many others. The most prized stickers sold for high sums at auction, $555,000 $555,000 for a Maradona sticker, anyone? These days, if you go to the website, there's a hardcover version and all sorts of extra gadgets, but nothing beats the original soft cover for me. This week, I'll start collecting all 670 stickers available. In Brazil, there are already complaints about the prices doubling compared to 2018. But this is one-time honor tradition that even a bit of sticker shock won't keep me from enjoying. From Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And this week I've welcomed in studio author and Panini expert Greg Lansdowne to talk about his incredible book, Football Stickers, The Official Celebration, A Nostalgic Journey Through the World of Panini, and the beautiful act of collecting stickers. Here's Greg with more.
1: Just to show how old I am, my first Panini album was in 1979. So that was Football 79, which is the, the domestic album covering English and Scottish football. I was then bitten by the bug so carried on collecting all the English domestic albums, and then that took me up to 82, which was the first World Cup album, Spain 82. And then it just went on and on and on as you get older and there's no school to, uh, to swap in. And at the time there was no internet, there weren't any opportunities really to collect once you, once you finish school, and it wasn't considered a, a grown-up pastime. Uh, when I was at university, for example, whereas now loads of people at university, it's quite quite a cult thing to do and lots of grown-ups do it. But uh, as a result, I, I took a hiatus, but always took an interest in uh, in panini stickers and football cards in, in general. And then I just came across all my old albums one day at my parents and uh, realised I'd never actually finished any of them. And that I was going to try to do it as a grown-up because uh, I had a bit more... Disposable income now, and uh, there were the internet was now up and running, and I, I could uh, find places to to get the old stickers to swap, and uh, it just went on from there. Then I ended up writing about it, advising companies about it, and it's just uh, taken a life of its own now.
0: That's amazing. And it's interesting you were talking about that you decided to collect some of it after when you were a fully grown-up adult. Uh, let's talk about the, the price. Some of it is quite valuable as well, right? I mean, I, I think it was a sticker, Maradona sticker, that is worth almost half a million or something like that?
1: Yep, $555,000. Oh. Do you have uh, one of those? <laughs> sadly, not. It, it, was, uh, it was an Italian uh, calciatore album, seventy nine eighty. Mm. So So it, it's his first Panini sticker, and that's that's why it's valuable. First rookie, as as they call it in America, is always uh, always key. There are a few collectibles of uh, Diego Maradona before that one, but the first Panini one is is always a, always a special one. As it happens in the news recently, was a a twelve point six million dollar baseball card uh, that got sold in America. So that's that's an indication of uh, how valuable these cards and stickers are now. The the first um, Soccer, as they call it uh, in in America, card that went for a million dollars was uh, was a Pele card in uh, in February, and I just think it's going to go keep going and going because obviously baseball is a uh, is a sport that's only of interest to to a few countries, whereas football is the global game. So I I can see eventually uh, football cards being the the dominant uh, collectibles market.
0: I was a little concerned as well because this week I think someone um, here in the UK decided you would need probably about £883 to, you know, to complete the album. That That's fairly expensive and, you know, spoiler alert, I am actually collecting. I'm a grown-up man here in the office, so hopefully there will be people here that can swap with me, but that's that's quite expensive and they have more stickers than ever, right?
1: Uh, yeah, £670 is, uh, is about roughly what it's been for a while because there's now 32 teams, so... When the World Cup album Panini started in Mexico 70, there was 16 teams, and now there's double. The next tournament is going to be 48. so That's going to be a huge yeah. one. So in that sense, you're going to have to have more stickers. But that figure of uh, nearly £900, pounds, it's uh, if you want to collect Panini stickers just buying packets, then that's a little bit foolhardy. One of the whole points of collecting Panini stickers is is to swap. And you could also send off the last 50 if, if you're struggling to get the last ones. But um, if you look for discounts and if you're shrewd with your swapping, then I think you can do it for about £150. Pounds. Well, that's
0: much better Which, than 883
1: As As we're doing this podcast in London, that's uh, that's probably the cost of one night out in London. So for several months of enjoyment, collecting panini stickers, I don't see that as bad... Uh, as bad value.
0: And what's the appeal? Sorry, I know it's a very general question to that, but I have to tell you something. It's almost, it's quite peaceful for me, actually, when I open the sticker. And there's even a section in your book, which I thought it was quite interesting, that, you know, you have to have a good hand-eye coordination as well. I think there's something peaceful about collecting then. But what what would you say is the main appeal oh, of it's, the sticker? It's, it's
1: very therapeutic, mm-hmm. especially, I've got three young kids. So to go away in my shed and uh sort sort out my panini stickers uh and stick them in you know it it might sound childish and uh, maybe it is but i think a lot of adults regress you go around the streets of london and you see lots of adults on scooters and uh all the adults are playing computer games this is what we were all doing when we were kids so why not panini stickers and uh and, and i think there was a reputation uh, a few years ago for you had to be a bit of a nerd to collect Panini stickers uh, as an adult. But firstly, there are so many adults who collect Panini stickers now and, and you get a sense of community from it. There, there's there's lots of uh, offices where they all pull together and uh, and that they do their swaps at lunchtime or after work in the pub. And it's bonding. And I, I also think that uh, the, the credibility, uh, for, for instance, a lot more of my friends have started to take notice of Football cards and stickers and sports cards and stickers in general because because they're seeing the value of them, and they're thinking oh maybe maybe I wasn't quite so uh, quite so silly to be keeping all my panini stickers when you see the value of them and and as I say a lot of people are especially in America are purely in it to get the rare cars the limited edition cars that they can then grade and then sell on 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 the secondary market. And it's interesting, especially for kids.
0: I think there's something about the physicality as well. I mean, the the, the print media almost. I mean, we, the stack here is a show about magazines, mm-hmm. but I think they're definitely connected in a way. This kind of you know it moves then away from just computer games, just the mobile or iPads, and,
1: and oh, definitely as as you say, younger kids uh, are purely interested or, or mainly interested in. Uh, in in digital so to get them involved in, in analog is uh, is is a great way to bond with your kids and i i get uh, get the panini sticker albums for for my kids and uh similarly because it's basically the same concept and, and format as it was when i was growing up there are so many aspects of it that uh, that are uh, useful for uh, for for children for instance the the world cup album in particular and the euro greatly enhance my uh, geographical knowledge mm. it's also great for for mathematics it's good for organizing skills and negotiating skills when you do the swapping you know there there are lots of businessmen that uh, that I've I've read say that their first venture into business was when they were swapping panini stickers trying to get one over on people and uh even one of the winners of the apprentice program in the bbc he's he said he used to repackage his old doubles and sell them as as packets uh so so there's even uh entrepreneurial lessons that you can take good from idea stickers
0: yeah. am i might well am i might well as do that do you have a favorite sticker for you it doesn't need to be it doesn't need to be worth a lot of money but perhaps on an emotional level perhaps your first one from 82
1: well, I always say that my, not necessarily my favourite, but the one that resonates most for me, is was uh, because Football 79 was my first album. Mm. Because my brother helped me massively with that album, he um, he bought a lot of packets of stickers for me, and I was able to get within one of finishing that album, which is actually the closest I got to finishing an album when I was growing up. So the sticker that, uh, that I always think of as 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 a favorite is the one that I didn't get for that album which was the uh, St Mirren badge I've never got it and I never will that album will always be one short because that's how I I remember it when I see St Mirren their their scores I I it always takes me back to 79 and uh, not not getting their badge and uh, but it it also takes me back to a, a good time of uh, hunting for something that that never arrived
0: Another great thing about your book, of course, is a lot of imagery, especially from you know the the older sticker albums. The only thing—it's a shame for them. I'm looking here at Italian '90. I mean, the cover was so beautiful and colorful. I think I don't know the the latest ones are a bit more kind of muted in that sense. So I kind of miss that design. It's beautiful this one, Italy Italian '90.
1: Yes, yeah, somebody mentioned it on uh, Twitter to me yesterday, and um, I. I've replied to them that yes, that they're right. So from after France '98, the covers have changed massively, but there is a reason for that, and it's not uh, it's not because of anything Panini have changed, but uh, the the licensing and the the corporate branding of the tournament means that uh, as they're as they're an official licensee, it means that they have to fit in with the tournament branding. So, and you will see that uh, with every tournament from uh, 2002 onwards, that uh, as, as you say, there's no uh, there's no artwork anymore of uh, of players. It's just the type of uh, branding that you will see in all the Qatar 2022 um, magazines and and everything, all the paraphernalia related to it. It's all the same. So um, you can understand why they want to do it. but Obviously, it's. Uh, when you look back on the old albums, they are vastly superior in terms of the, the the imagery.
0: One thing that I was always curious about the albums as well, especially the World Cup ones, that, I mean, Panini and I don't know who, they decide the, the players before actually the final list. So there might be scope for a lot of kind of mistakes. Well, <laughs> mistakes, I mean, that that's almost funny as well. You can predict, I mean, who is actually going to be in the team? I mean, who, who decides that? Are there football experts or...?
1: Yeah, there are football experts mm. at Panini, and they also consult with the the governing bodies of uh, of each uh, competing nation because these uh, associations have to supply the the images. So they don't want to uh, supply lots of images of players who are, who are not going to appear in the tournament. But on the other hand, they don't necessarily want to entirely give the give the game away. So if if there was someone who you would think is definitely going to go in be in the squad and they're not uh, and then and the association knows that they're not then if if they left them out then that then people would think oh what's what's going on here so there are some um, omissions but uh, because they have to finalize their the panini squads uh, many many months before the tournament then that's that's going to happen so for example Toto Scalacci in Italia 90, he's not in uh, the Italian 90 Panini album because he he didn't break into the Italian team until a few months before the tournament started. Thierry Henry is not in France's Euro 2000 squad and and people might look back on that, well well, he was their star strike in that tournament, how is he not in that? But he, after France 98 he was actually left out of the French team for, for quite a long time so he again only got back into the squad a few months before Euro 2000 and it happens. Uh, even David Beckham wasn't in the, the France 98 album, and, and he certainly played in that one.
0: And finally, Greg, I just want to know, how, how is your relationship with Panini? I mean, this is such a beautiful book, so I'm sure you have a good relationship nevertheless. But is this an official release from Panini, or is this kind of your personal project about about the company?
1: That book is uh, is an official okay. uh, 60th anniversary book. So I, I did a book called Stuck On You, in 2015, which is the story of Panini, but it's also the story of other companies such as Merlin, uh, who were taken over by Topps and lots of other others beside. But Panini did did help with that, and that then became a, an ITV documentary. So I always uh, maintained a relationship with them from that point. And then uh, then I put it to them, well, stuck on you was uh was the story of Panini, but th- there's not many images in it. And and obviously Panini is all about the imagery, so I, I got in touch with them and said, "Well, would you be interested in?" Uh, actually, I, I approached a publisher first, Bloomsbury, about doing such a book, and then uh, and then once I secured the publisher, then I got in touch with uh, with Panini. It took four years and two uh, two lockdowns to uh, to finally get to the point of. Uh, of it being printed but uh, and, and and also that it's the case of sourcing all the images which uh, which even with the backing of panini is not easy because they don't have everything mm-hmm. Uh so it was certainly a labor of love but once it's out as as you say it's uh, i'm really happy with the with the way it's come out and uh, it's it's been very successful thank you very much
0: greg and the world cup 2022 sticker album is out now And so is Greg's book, Football Stickers, The Official Celebration, A Nostalgic Journey Through the World of Panini. Also this week, Monaco's U.S. editor, Christopher Lord, wrote a little something about a special local paper, the East Hampton Star, a ray of sunshine in the world of local news in the U.S., which is suffering at the moment. Here is Chris with
2: more. There's an ever-present crisis facing local news. Just last week, it was revealed the scale of layoffs happening at Gannett, which publishes 200 papers across the United States, including the Poughkeepsie Journal and the Desert Sun in Palm Springs, following quarterly losses to the tune of $54 million. Yet there's one local paper that gives me reason to be hopeful. I just spent a weekend with friends in Amagansett, Long Island, and on the kitchen table was, as always, a copy of the East Hampton Star. The Star is a family-owned weekly that's been going since 1885. It's printed on heavy newsprint, can withstand a splash from the pool or an overturned glass of rosé, and the writing can sometimes be moving, or it can be hilariously deadpan as it moves across the big stories and banalities of life in the community. My favourite section is called On The Police Logs, which rounds up the previous week in local misdemeanours. They just have a story about a mother who allowed her daughter to have a few friends over. She returned from a night out to a house full of juveniles who wouldn't leave, read the East Hampton Star report. The mother chased them all off with a portable lawn sprinkler. The cops were called when one reveller smashed a window. The star shines because it reads like a blow-by-blow snapshot of the week of was. It is deeply knit in the people and place around it. Of course, this is a paper in a very moneyed part of the US, and I can't comment on the financials, but I do know this. Everyone I met had the latest edition sitting at home and most, I suspect, would fight to keep it going. How many other local papers can say the same? And next here on the stack,
0: we head to Toronto, where in July, a brand new shop dedicated to print magazines opened its doors. Issues was founded by the designer and creative director, Nicola Hamilton, whose work designing magazines led her to a desire to sell them to. The shop's focus is on smaller run independent magazines that are harder to find in Canada. Many of the titles she stocks are undistributed elsewhere in the country. Our correspondent in Toronto, Thomas Lewis, popped by to speak to her for the stack.
3: So we opened in Toronto on July 13th of 2022. I'm a magazine art director, so I've been working in this industry for about 10 years now, and when I travel, I seek out interesting independent newsstands to gather inspiration, to do research, and Toronto hasn't had one in a very long time. So it's been an idea that's been percolating for a few years now, and I started to take it really seriously in April of last year. I actually sent Jeremy Leslie at My Culture an email and said, okay, I think I'm gonna do this, and that was sort of the moment where it started to become to become real. So, a full year, 14 months later, we opened our doors. The space looks a bit like an art gallery and it feels a bit like a record store, which was sort of the initial intention. So one of the things that was important when I set out with my interior design partner, company, company, was to make sure that the magazines were displayed with the same kind of care, attention, and love that goes into making these independent design objects. And so one of the things that was important was making sure that we could actually see as many titles as possible. So when you walk into the shop, you are, First thing you see is this big, beautiful table. It's bright blue. It is the focal point of the shop and the sort of magazines laid out on top of it change regularly. We clear this table off for workshops and field trips and use it as a gathering space. Around the walls of the shop, the shop's quite quite narrow, not huge. We're sort of, I think about a 300 square foot footprint. But along the walls are our shelves. They're triangular in shape, they're very geometric, they're very minimal, and on those shelves are magazines facing you, sort of full face. You can see the whole cover, and they are lined. Um, We don't have enough inventory yet that they're all sort of overlapping each other, but that'll be fun when we get there. And one of the interesting things about the space are the colors. So the colors themselves are, there's actually quite, quite a lot of diversity in color in this space, and that was one of the designer Rochelle LeBlanc's insights was that magazines themselves are so there is a lot of visual clutter in the store. There could be a lot of visual clutter because magazine covers change so much and there's no rhyme or reason from one magazine's cover to the next. They don't match necessarily. There's no uniformity. And so by using soft colors, we've got sort of a dove gray, a, a light, light pale peach, and a butter yellow in our shelves. By using those colors, you actually have the magazine sort of start to soften and blend back and the cognitive load isn't quite enough or isn't quite as much as it could be. Jeremy Leslie was a massive, massive help for some of those sort of logistical questions. How do I actually get magazines? How many magazines do I need? How do I curate them? That was really, really helpful. And sort of how do I sell them online? Those sorts of questions were super helpful to me, right? Someone who's producing magazines on the regular, I'm used to these kind of monthly quarterly at maximum sort of timelines. So to work on something for a year actually felt really painfully slow.
4: (laughs) Hopefully not too painful. Was that were you sort of learning along the way? And I guess did the idea sort of change in that time as you were sort of getting closer to building out the shop, designing it, having the, the magazines on display?
3: Yeah. I think that it's been really interesting to be on the other side of this industry, right? So sort of behind the scenes of the industry, I'm used to being part of the production team that's actually putting a title together. And so to start to understand how distribution works to how magazines get where they get and to um, see what what customers are actually picking up and interested in reading and excited about or haven't been able to access in some way. So that's taught me a lot. Um, and it has sort of changed subtly the way that I bring in inventory and I think also the way I design magazines on the other side, which has been interesting. I mean, I believe in independent media pretty strongly. I believe that that is the next sort of incarnation of magazines that that niche independent titles, that lower frequencies smaller press runs are are the way we're heading, sort of away from the commercial titles. And one of the sort of theories that I have is that here in Canada, our independent market has not grown all that much, and there's a whole whack of reasons, many of them rooted in money for why that might be the case. But one of my theories is that it might also be exposure. There might be a lot of people with magazine ideas sort of percolating, but not understanding that these independent smaller run titles exist elsewhere in the world. So I'm hoping that folks being able to see them, they might start to be able to see themselves and the thing that they want to create in those spaces.
4: And you can give us a sort of little tour of the kind of magazines we've got here, and maybe why, why you were so keen to include some of them and to be a sort of retailer in Toronto for them.
3: As far as which titles we brought in, I am the first retailer for a lot of these publications, and, and publications that, that we know and love, things like Pitt out of the UK, and Noble Rot for food, sort of looking around. I came for Couscous, which is a more recent launch, um, Stoned, the Korean surfing journal. I'm the first Canadian retailer for a lot of these folks, and so that's that's exciting. Also wild. We had to pay to have something shipped across border, across the sea, to get it here. I mean, I still have to do that, but now at least folks can come and take a flick through. Some of these titles, when they actually landed in the store, it was the first time I had flipped through them in real life. So things like the American Football Journal Spiral I'd never seen in real life, only online. And that experience of flipping through it is so different.
4: It seems such like a simple thing, doesn't it? But it makes such a difference of actually seeing whether the publisher made it a really big sort of format or a or a small little bookish thing sort of there is still a magic to that
3: absolutely i think besides such an interesting example of that they're a canadian independent title they are based in montreal and in toronto we haven't had sort of immediate access to them in the same way so i think a lot of us have followed their journey through the national magazine awards and the awards they're winning and online and yeah it's it's much smaller than i anticipated too They were in here actually, um, we're out of, we we sold out and we'll get more, but they were in here a couple of weeks ago, taking a poke around, rearranging shelves to take photos.
4: Oh, fantastic. Yeah.
3: Which I think is the other kind of interesting thing. We have a lot of Toronto based or Canada based startup titles in here that I'm really excited about. Um, Serviette, which is published by Max Megan, is a food magazine. This issue's theme is food is everything, and so it's sort of seed all the way through to food on the table. It's really beautiful. We've sold so many copies of it, and it's been fun to have Max part of this community too. And Darby, which is a Canadian soccer culture journal, which is a magazine that couldn't have existed in Canada a couple of years ago, right? We're in this moment where, where soccer or football is sort of becoming exciting in Canada for the first time in a long time, and so that's published between Vancouver and Toronto.
4: And it's, it's the, the soccer thing is kind of a really nice example because I guess that's sort of, to me anyway, a bit of a, the joy of, of magazines is that quite often newer ones do sort of tap into something that maybe didn't really exist before. So it becomes this kind of snapshot of actually maybe something a bit bigger that like, oh, you know, moods are changing or new stories are there to be told that no one really sort of thought of before. And it is quite unique, isn't it, that magazines... I don't know why, but have this kind of ability to sort of reflect that. Maybe it's because mm-hmm. of the slower pace, you can be a bit more considered. I don't, I don't know, like you were mentioning before. But there is something quite lovely about that.
3: Yeah. No, I think it is. I think it is the slower pace. I think it's the idea of curation. Magazines have always been vessels of, of curation and culture, right? So it makes sense that they're they're the vehicle that is sort of showing us what is happening here in the country. And I think... I think independent media does that a little bit better because they are not sort of following the advertising path, right? They're following the sort of creatives that wanted to build that thing or involved in that community or telling the stories from those communities.
4: In terms of the indie magazines that you stock here, I think print is not dead is a big sort of feature of of your sort of online presence. But in, in reality, how challenging is the market for producers of smaller magazines, for writers, for art directors. You know, what is that landscape like now? You said that there was room for growth, but I wonder what that looks like in reality from your vantage point now sort of selling
3: them. Here in Canada, sort of in the, the mass commercial market, we have a tendency to be a few years behind the rest of the world. And so one of the things that I noticed that made opening issues seem feasible was that independent media was was on the uptick elsewhere in the world. And in Canada, it hasn't been. And some of those reasons are, are many. Funding for startup publications is really hard to access in Canada and almost doesn't exist if you're anything but a fine arts or a literary title, or it's very small and then the other piece of that is our is our geography so making a magazine and shipping a magazine across canada is quite challenging because it's such a big geographic country that is so vast shipping is tough everywhere right now right this is one of the sort of pieces that came out of the pandemic is that shipping costs a lot of money and takes a little bit more time and is harder we sort of took it for granted before so we do we do have room for growth there i think one of the spaces that that sort of the commercial print industry in Canada has let wither away is the pipeline for young talent. So designers, writers, editors coming out of journalism programs and graphic design programs and who are interested in working in in magazines or in publishing in some capacity don't really have anywhere to go, so they don't have mentors to look for. There aren't jobs for junior editors anymore or junior designers, and so that is one of the things I hope to address over over the next few years. I don't know how, I don't know what that looks like yet, except that I know it doesn't exist and that it's a really hard space for folks to get into. And our publishing industry is only stronger by having those young and emerging voices be part of it, right? We'll have to start
2: somewhere.
4: And who has been stepping through the door? Who have your customers been sort of so far? Has, that, has any of that sort of surprised you about who's taken an interest?
3: There's a large swath that has not surprised me, so photographers, illustrators, artists, writers, journalists, folks who sort of orbit the media industry, the print industry, and longtime print lovers who are excited to be able to access something in person um, and not pay shipping costs for things. And then there's a whole swath of, of young folks that haven't been exposed to a lot of these titles who sort of walk in and look around and, and look at us and say, I've never seen any of these things before, and that part's really exciting. And then there's, a, then there's a, a very surprising group of people who are using magazines as an indicator of lifestyle, again, that's really interesting. So folks are coming in, they either have studio spaces that they rent out to influencers, for photo shoots and and content generation, or they are styling their own homes in some way, but they're asking us to help them pick out magazines for their coffee table, their credenza, their bookshelf, things that represent their their own values, but also aesthetically fit in to the vibe. It was maybe the sixth or seventh time it happened that I looked to Sabrina, who works here part-time, and said, is this happening to you too? And she said, yeah, two a day. We get photos of folks' bookshelves. They're trying to do something aesthetic, meaningful. I mean, my hope is they open it, they crack it open and read at least one or two stories. Um, but yeah, that's been a really interesting group of customers for sure. So I got a really wonderful piece of advice early on in the process of thinking through issues. And it was from Sam James, who owns many locations of Sam James Coffee Bar. And I asked Sam, you know, am I, am I nuts? Should I be... Should I be building something online and and seeing and testing and seeing if it'll grow to become a bricks and mortar business? And he looked at me and said, nobody just stumbles on your online shop in the way that they stumble on your bricks and mortar space. You need both of those things. And so far, that experience has been true. The bulk of our sales have been people wandering by and noticing that there's something new in the neighborhood, something new on the street. And our online sales have only made up about 10% of our sales at this point in our first month. So there's room for growth in online sales for sure. But without the bricks and mortar, I don't know that we would have the same sort of authority in the community that we have.
0: Nicola Hamilton there, founder of the Issues Magazine shop in Toronto, speaking to Monaco's Thomas Lewis. And if you're not in Toronto, you can find Issues at issuesmagshop.com. That's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonocle.com. And And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, we can download The Stack on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and at Monaco.com as well. Before we go, a little song for you. Jorge Ben with Take It Easy, My Brother Charles. You've been listening to The Stack I'm a little Gusto until next time. It's goodbye from me.
2: Take it easy, my brother
0: my